Hello, Hannah here, and welcome to the Earth's Humans podcast. Today's guests made an incredible short film, Hellbent, which is currently winning awards left, right and centre. It documents a mother and daughter team in Grant Township, Pennsylvania, as they take on a huge fracking corporation to protect their water source and, in the process, save the habitat of a highly endangered, incredibly sensitive and thoroughly weird-looking salamander. Not only is the film visually stunning, which you'll see when you watch it, it also has an empowering and hopeful message that left me feeling like I could actually change the world if I wanted to. While the fight in this film is far from over, it shows what small grassroots conservation movements are capable of and the power that we can have when we work together. Check out the show notes on our shiny new website to watch the film, earthtohumanspod.com. faces finally we are the three people behind the earth demons podcast um myself serena simons matt podolsky here and hannah mulvani here awesome so great to see you guys um uh hannah was just showing us her little puppy that she rescued out of a garbage bin and named him dusty and it's like so sad but he's so cute and we're just rooting for him yeah he's out he's gone back outside playing uh, <laughs> don't know bringing him on to the uh don't know bringing him out would would have been the best idea but there we go no there fine. we go <laughs> outside playing in the jungle somewhere now so. <laughs> he's perfect oh i hope you're able to take him home that would be awesome yeah yeah it would be a really like happy ending to his story bless him yeah oh i just it makes me nuts that people do that to animals um uh, yeah i don't know it's one of those things where i just don't understand but i know it happens all the time all over the world i hope one day humans can be better but good humans like you exist hannah that are willing to take little dusty dogs and name them dusty and try to give them (laughs) homes I mean, I think in in the back of my mind, I'm trying to think that, like, the person that put him in the bin was hoping that somebody would find him in the bin and that, mm. yeah, that they would take care of him. So I'm maintaining my... Your optimism. humanity at this point. Yeah. I, <laughs> I'm glad you there. are. Because yeah, I'm just there. like, yeah. I'm like, oh, people suck. They suck so bad. <laughs> anyway... <laughs> I think you guys should take it away with um, introducing this upcoming episode. Yeah, I mean, I'm super excited about this episode because I had the opportunity to produce, uh, be one of the producers involved in in Hellbent in this short documentary. Um, I actually didn't participate in, in the interview. Hannah uh, spoke with our two co-directors, 
um, Annie and Justin. Um, yeah, I, I'm super excited about this conversation. I think Annie and Justin are a great team. Um, and yeah, Hannah, I'm curious like what some of your takeaways were. Um, so, yeah, just from the moment I was told about the film and about what it was about, it just, it, yeah, it was, it's just such an incredible project. And I think it was really, really great to talk to the people who were involved about what their, what their kind of takeaways from it were um, and what they're hoping the film will achieve. Because obviously right now, Hellbent is, every it's won so many awards it's doing so well on the film festival circuit and I think it really deserves it like it the story is amazing the cinematography is amazing the just the characters in it the it's so topical with what's happening at the moment in the environmental world as well because it discusses rights of nature which is a very current movement and it also discusses something that we've just had to fight against in the UK um obviously for those listening you'll hear that I'm not a US person um <laughs> but it's something that we are um almost got passed through again in the UK and everybody here is very scared well most people here are very scared of fracking and it gave me a really good insight into what fracking is and what happens when communities are threatened by fracking companies and it made me even more scared of mm -hmm. fracking <laughs> mm -hmm. to be honest and made me even more anti like just nervous about it um and i think the takeaway for me from the film was one of hope and of empowerment. And I think that's something that's very rare as a as an environmentalist is to, yeah, come away from any film feeling like you can change the world, you know? Um, like, I think you often feel like you're fighting a losing battle and watching these two incredible women, this mother and daughter team of just the most amazing people, fighting this big fracking company made you feel like you can actually do something you can actually make a difference and and just that kind of grassroots conservation story is so powerful Hey, hi everybody and welcome to the Earth to Humans podcast. I am Hannah, one of your hosts, and today I am joined by some of the production team of the new short film environmental documentary, Hellbent. We're joined by Justin and Annie today and each of them played slightly different roles within the film's production. So just before we dive in, I just wondered if we could go around and do a quick introduction and you can tell us a little bit about yourselves and what your role was within the film. Sure, I'll start. Uh, my name is Annie Roth and I'm a freelance science journalist and I'm one of the two directors of Hellbent. Um, yeah, my work focuses almost exclusively on wildlife and uh, it was a really wonderful experience to work on this film. Nice. And my name is Justin. I am a science communicator. I do a lot of different things <laughs> when it comes to science communication. 
Uh, so I just kind of broadly lump it all together there. So I, I'm a photographer, I'm a filmmaker, I write stuff, I do workshops, I do training, and but then I also do more traditional science conservation type work. So kind of all together, but mostly focused on wildlife conservation and communities. And for the film Hellbent, I was the co-director with Annie. I also helped produce it. And I also filmed a lot of the film. Amazing. So for those people who are listening who haven't watched the film yet, could you give us a quick synopsis of what it's about? Sure. Hellbent tells the story of a mother and daughter who are fighting a fracking company to protect their community and the rare giant salamanders that reside within it. So the characters in our film live in a place called Grant Township, Pennsylvania. It's a small rural town and uh, 700 other people live there. And when their only source of fresh water was threatened by the installation of a frack waste injection well, they banded together to fight the fracking company and ultimately grant their local watershed rights, like legal rights, to prevent the fracking company from dumping their waste there and to protect their source of fresh water and the hellbenders living within it. Amazing. So lots of themes within the film. Something that I always find really fascinating when we interview people that have made films and whenever I'm watching documentaries about these kinds of stories is just knowing how you guys came across the story in the first place. Yeah, so that journey kind of took a lot of twists and turns as we were working on this project. But the very, very original idea of doing a film about fracking and hellbenders came from a retreat that we are all kind of a part of. It was uh, a retreat sponsored by the Wildlands Collective. And that idea was something that I have had with me for a while. Um, I used to work with hellbenders. And so, you know, what I would do is I would go collect hellbender eggs out of the wild, bring them into managed care and rear them for a period of two years and then release them back out into the wild when they're you know, a sub-adult so that they'd be large enough to be able to find habitat, avoid predators, find food, that kind of thing. And so, you know, when I would go down and release hellbenders into Southern Ohio, which is a really big area for fracking, we would notice pipeline installations happening at the same time. And we would see wells being developed and all this other stuff. And we would also see the impact of those developments down there on the water quality. You know, sometimes we would have streams that were once clear, but then were brown because of all the landslides that were caused by pipeline installations. Or, you know, in some cases, they have to put pipelines underneath these creeks, streams, and rivers. And so there's absolutely no way you can't just demolish a whole habitat by digging underneath this very vulnerable habitat to put in a pipeline. So we would see those kind of things happening and, you know, it caused a lot of friction between the work that we were doing and the work that was being done to extract gas and oil from these habitats. Um, and so that was always a point that I wanted to like build a story around because it was really, really frustrating then. And that problem has only gotten worse over the last several years. And so, you know, the story kind of began with like looking at a possible solution to that issue where, you know, a film could be something that we do to help spread the word that this is the fracking industry is causing a lot of havoc down there and it's exploiting communities and it's putting the hellbender at risk. Uh, but then from that, you know, we kind of were looking for 
characters and stories and things. And part of the original solutions, part of our film concept was to talk about rights of nature. And so uh, we found Stacy and Judy in Grant Township doing all this great work. We went out there to meet them and we fell in love with Grant Township. We became best friends with Judy and Stacy, and we decided like that was the story what their fight was and what was going on there and what they were doing to help with the hellbender. Like that was the story. So it was really, really, really great to meet them and, you know, kind of fall there. Cause I think that's what really, really helped this story take shape. One of the most enjoyable things for me about the film was just Stacy and Judy as characters. Like you must've obviously on finding them, you must've struck gold with, with the characterization within the film <laughs> How did you meet them? Like, what was your kind of first meeting like? I kind of coordinated with them beforehand. And Annie helped coordinate with them beforehand. So they just kind of knew, like, we were coming and what we were doing and everything. And when it was time to go and finally meet up with them, we had, you know, our cinematographers all together. There was one van that one of us was living out of. And then the other two were just, I think we had a rental car or something. So we roll up into this like private long gravel driveway and we show up and we knock on this door and they're like, Hey, you're here. And they had this whole party like planned for us. They had drinks and food and a fire and all the neighbors were over and like, these are the filmmakers. They're here. And we had a great time. You know, we, we chatted with them and we told jokes and we kind of like bonded over that. I mean, they, they were great, very welcoming. And so you know, that very much helped us kind of tell their story because, you know, sometimes when you're trying to tell a story about someone, they kind of put up walls and they kind of, you know, be a little off-putting, but they were very welcoming, very excited to engage with us. And so that's kind of why we're like, wow, this is amazing. They're great. And then we did our interview and they were just telling us what they thought and how everything was going. And it was just, you know, and they had a lot of really nice pickup quotes in between where they would say something funny or they would like sit, deliver the perfect line. So it just, it worked out really nice, but you know, through, through all this, I think we've kind of developed a nice little friendship with that community. Uh, we've seen them a couple times since they were just at the American conservation film festival. We gave them, Annie and I went to the New York wild film festival and we got an award for best short and Katie hand delivered that award to them at the American conservation film festival. And of course they cried and, all that good stuff. And so, yeah, it's just been really great working with them. So what stage of the of the story did you guys come in? Because I know obviously the film t- tells the story of their entire fight from start to end, but where was it that you guys started? So we kind of hopped in, right? Um, it's, I don't want to give too many spoilers, but I like their victory. So a lot had already happened and there'd been reporting on that, which is how we found out about them. So we went there and kind of went over everything that had already happened from like their different legal cases to the community organizing to like what they see in the future. But things have happened since our film's been made. So their fight is very much still happening, which I think is almost better for our film that we like as we promote it and show it to as many people as possible, we give them something actionable. We're out here telling people that their fight is still going on. There's ways to support their fight. And 
by supporting them. And if they succeed, we can set a precedent for places that want to do similar legal strategies and protect their environment as well. When you are talking about their fight, which has been mentioned a few times now, can you just go into a bit more detail about what that fight is? Yeah. So pretty much the synopsis of our whole film is that this community organized and used legal strategies to protect their watershed from being threatened by a frack waste installation. So and originally they had banned frack waste injection wells in their town through like a very small scale, it's called a home rule charter. So they're able to govern themselves to a certain extent because they're small enough and it's like a interesting Pennsylvania law. So they banned frack waste injection wells and then they were sued because of that. And then they made rights of nature an aspect of their home rule charter. And they went through all these lawsuits and they won and they lost and they won. And then as of 2020, the permit that had been issued to allow the deposit of frack waste in Grant Township was overturned. So it was a big victory. We were all very happy. There are other rights of nature laws in the U.S., but like whenever they're tested, they don't work. So this was like a big victory of like for rights of nature. However, that same home rule charter is now being, it's like validness is being questioned. So it had been overturned, but then they appealed it in the court and that case is bouncing around and it's hearing hasn't been scheduled yet, but it could still be overturned. So right now we're sort of in a very important stage, but their legal fight has had a lot of ups and downs. And you said the deadly words 2020 during that. So obviously that would have been not only for their battle, but obviously for you guys filming that battle, that the pandemic must have kind of put a few a few issues in there I'm assuming um so how did that impact the story and the filmmaking it definitely made it a lot harder but we all of us were in different parts of the country trying to make this film together so we did it with very few shoots and a very small crew there was only like there was one shoot where we had a couple guys just out in the wilderness filming hellbenders and then we had like two shoots where they actually went to Grand Township. And we were very like careful about going to Grand Township. So whenever there was like a dip in like cases and there's no new variants, we would send the crew. And then when they go back up, we're like, oh, you guys got to get out of there. So it definitely threw some wrenches. But again, we were like low budget, small team, very few shoots. So it didn't really make it impossible. Obviously from working with Hellbenders, Justin, and from looking at the habitat in which they live that must have thrown up quite a few issues with filming they are obviously notoriously hard to spot so having that expertise within your team must have been a really um but must have been really really valuable when trying to get those amazing shots that you guys got on the film yeah I mean like you said hellbenders are really really tough to find uh because they spend a majority of their life living under rocks so they have this little tiny cavity that they live in, and that's kind of where they hang out. They wait for crayfish and snails and other fish and stuff to swim by, and that's when they, they eat. Um, so most of the year, they're just kind of there. But uh, there's only like one part of the year where the males will come out and they'll fight one another for the right to fertilize the eggs of fellow female hellbenders. And so 
you know, there's like a two week period. It kind of depends on where exactly you are in the country because hellbenders span from like Southern New York all the way to like Missouri. And so, you know, that, that time in which the males are out fighting each other changed. But for us, you know, we filmed in North Carolina and in Pennsylvania. And so we were able to go out there at that specific time. We worked with local biologists and we were able to film the males out and about doing their thing. And so, you know, all of the footage that we got were, were wild hellbenders uh, roaming around looking for other males to fight or looking for a female's nest to go and hang out in. And so it was pretty cool, but it was very challenging. Like you said, there was a lot of current. Um, there was one point where uh, the other cinematographer, Michael, was out there with me. I had gone out beforehand to kind of scout, and the water current was insane. And so I had told Michael that he needed to like bring a dive belt and like rope, and we were going to have to like hold on to each other to film these hellbenders because there had just been a storm and then like almost flash flood conditions. And so I had been working in that, and then he showed up and it was just like trickling. He's like, dude, what is this? Like you said that the river was raging. I'm like, Michael, you see that picnic table up like 10 feet up in that tree? That's what it was like a couple days ago, man. He's like, oh my God. So when we started like seriously filming for this, it was significantly, the conditions significantly improved and we were able to get a lot of the really good shots. But man, if it had been like that the whole time, it would have been really challenging. Um, but yeah, um, they they like clear water. Uh, it's really easy to see their habitat, but when you install a pipeline or something downstream, it could really cause a lot of issues with sedimentation. And that sedimentation smothers the rocks and buries their habitat and prevents them from being able to really live where they need. There's a similar species called a mud puppy. Um, it's a, a salamander that retains its external gills its whole life. And they actually can handle like muddy bottoms and they live around like plants, aquatic plants and down logs and stuff. But hellbenders, they absolutely need rocks, no mud, no sediment. And that's how they prefer to live. People describe these animals as the canary in the coal mine. Their available habitat is shrinking as a result of the threats that you've mentioned and their historical range was much bigger if I'm not wrong I think their historical range was about the same uh they just were a lot more numerous within their habitat and so yeah I mean it's it's just they have adapted and evolved in an area that has a lot of geological activity uh, the Appalachian Mountains are incredibly old and so they've had a lot of time to uh, carbonize a lot of the life that had lived in those mountains over the course of millions of years. And so you get these pockets of oil and gas and natural resources that you coal as well, all these natural resources that burn well. Um, and so that's kind of what puts that that impact on them, that that challenge on their livelihood. Being from a non-US country, we in the UK, fracking, it's not something that we're particularly um, accustomed to. We haven't seen the negative impacts of it and we're not, these fights aren't happening there. So it's, uh, this story was really, really new to me in that regard. And I just wondered if, 
for any future battles that I might partake in <laughs> if this happened on on um kind of home soil how how tough is this fight that's going on like the, obviously these companies have a lot of power I'm guessing it's not it's not easy yeah I mean kind of to your point it's it's definitely a hard fight that they're involved in and when you look at other countries it kind of really depends on how you look at the constitution and how it's written if they have one not all countries do but you know that i think the big challenge here in the united states is that the way our constitution is written and how it's interpreted in the courts and everything is that the rights of corporations are valued at a higher level than the rights of our citizens and so when there's always a legal fight that comes down to a corporation versus a citizen usually the corporation is the one who comes out victorious. And so that's, I think, a big challenge. I'm not sure how it is in the UK, but in the US, that's like the big thing because here capitalism is king. And if you get in its way, you're going to get bulldozed by, you know, the lobbyists and the corporations who pretty much are just throwing money into the government's pockets and politicians' pockets who are making these policies. And that's kind of why we're in this position we are now. So that's what makes it really tough. And then you can imagine how tough it is, like just trying to prove that the right of a human living in this country should be equal to, at the very least, a corporation. And then you try to assign rights of nature to something. And it's like, most of the time people are like, oh, heck no, you know, people aren't even the same as a corporation. How is nature going to be the same? It's like, well, people came from nature and then corporations came from people. So we've got it backwards, but you know, <laughs> um, so that's kind of the situation here. And, you know, because of that, we have natural resource extraction activities here in the U S that are illegal in Europe. So for example, one of them being, we have ethylene cracker factories, which are essentially these massive factories that produce the raw materials that are used yeah. in creating plastic. And the, um, the things that come out of that are so toxic. The raw materials and the byproducts are so toxic that European countries have banned that in their country. So they're produced in the U.S. and then they're shipped to the European countries and then they're made into the plastic products and then they're shipped back to the United States. So it's like, you know, it, it's it's definitely different elsewhere, but in the US it's especially tough, I think. Yeah, I'd like to add that while Grand Township's fight is very unique, they have a very unique legal system in even just in their township. It's a fight that can be like seen elsewhere if you if you sort of zoom out. So they're trying to give apply rights to watersheds and ecosystems in other places. And overseas, it's had a lot more success than in the U.S. But I think that any community that is trying to protect their environment can see themselves in Grant Township's fight. We obviously have talked about rights of nature quite a lot, and it's something that it's a movement that seems to be gathering speed and something that keeps popping up in the news and in lots of places all around the world that is it's a relatively new movement it's not brand new but obviously it's being utilized by communities all around the world now and this is obviously a very inspiring example of it being used so can we just delve into rights of nature a little bit more for a minute it's just as a as a legal construct for people that actually don't 
don't know what what it is and might not have heard of it before. Yeah, so rights of nature is the legal theory that ecosystem species, watersheds, uh, what have you, any sort of facet of nature can be uh, assigned legal rights. And it's also the idea that they inherently have or should have the same rights as people to flourish without being, you know, disturbed, impacted, destroyed, what have you. So some places like Ecuador have written in their constitution, other places like in Canada, certain indigenous groups have applied it to small scale, you know, like a watershed or like a one river. So while it's still new, it is, like you said, picking up steam. It's just in the U.S. where it's sort of like not taking off. So they've made a lot of rights of nature laws in the US, but whenever they're tested, like if a corporation is like, hey, you can't do that, they tend to fail. Lake Erie or in you know how they passed a bill of rights for Lake Erie. And that stood for a minute until someone tested it and then it was overturned. So while it works in other countries, it has yet to work in the United States because of just sort of the corporate culture that goes on here. However, there are nonprofits and like legal institutions that are dedicated to promoting this idea and helping people institute it. So it's something I'm pretty excited about. I want more people to know about it and be familiar with it and just sort of like swallow the idea that nature should have rights. And it's, it's, it goes along with a lot of religions. It goes along with a lot of indigenous worldviews. It goes along with even just the idea of human rights. Like, you know, the UN has decided that all humans have a list of fundamental rights. And I think that, and, you know, lots of other people think too, that that should be applied to nature as well. In the UK, we are, we haven't had a rights of nature case upheld either. I think our structures are, are relatively similar with regards to corporations and all of that kind of stuff. But there are, there are things going on right now, hoping to give rivers legal rights. Because it was recently found that none of the rivers in the whole of the UK, excluding Scotland, were in like good ecological health. And as is more of like a chemical pollution and sewage issue than than kind of anything to do with fracking injection wells. But yeah, there's a lot of things going on there. So it was really interesting when I watched your film to learn about this community and about communities that are already being impacted by this and and use it as a as an idea. So you've mentioned a couple of partnerships that you had with other people within the film and with other organizations. And I know that one of them is Frack Tracker which is a fascinating organization. I hadn't heard of them before. So who who were your partners for the film? Like who were those crucial people who who helped make it happen? Yeah, I would say Frack Tracker was a really good one. Um, and they're a great organization to get connected with if you're a community member or a citizen or whatever who is interested in what is going on with the fracking industry. What they do really well is they have they they basically produce information for the general public that is hidden or extremely difficult to access because a lot of that information is protected um, under trade secrets and in very complicated reports that only go to certain places that are not necessarily accessible to the general public. And so what they do is they bring that to light. Uh, they also have an incredible app where you can go out and you can see where pipelines are being put in and you can 
report back to this app and they create this massive database where all the pipelines are going in or where injection wells are going in, where well pads are being installed. Because um, that, again, that information is really hard to access as a general member of the public. So being able to see where that's happening, how close it is to your house, where your community is in relation to activity regarding fracking, um, that's all information that can be found by using Frack Tracker's app and by engaging with the Frack Tracker's website and their outreach materials. So they were great. And so we had interviewed Ted, who is who works at uh, Frack Tracker, who was able to kind of break down fracking and its implications and how it, you know, takes advantage of these communities and all that kind of stuff. And so they were a great one. And we're actually working with Frack Tracker uh, on our impact campaign by trying to spread the news of this film and reach their audience and connect with their community members who they have been working with. Because they, they have a lot of people that they've been supporting uh, across the Midwest who are dealing with a lot of fracking problems. And so we're kind of using them to kind of connect to those communities and they're using us to connect the dots between everyone around this story because it's, you know, it is a positive story and it shows that, you know, if you stand up, you know, make a big difference for your community. And so that's kind of what we were hoping would connect all these communities. So Frack Tracker has been great. Another really good partner is Ohio University. Matt Connor is our one of our characters in our film, and he's the hellbender guy, and he's doing his PhD research on hellbenders in Pennsylvania. And so because of him and because of Ohio University's uh, interest in participating in the film and everything, he is, you know, they they had a great job. They did a screening as soon as we finished the film. Uh, Matt's also participating in a lot of the discussions and panels. Like we have one coming up with Frack Tracker, he's going to be on. And so they were also a really good um, partner as well. Um, right now, we're kind of working on identifying some other impact partners um, for this film. And so, you know, we've had a lot of interest between some zoos and some public entities. And if anybody's interested in, helping us tell the story or doing a screening or anything or coming on as an impact partner, it's, it would be great because the, what we're hoping to do at this stage in our film is try to share it with as many people as we possibly can. That kind of leads me on nicely to my next question. By now, I'm sure everybody listening is desperate to watch the film. <laughs> um, so where can people find it? Is there going to be an online release? What's the, where, yeah, where, where can all these people watch it? So right now, um, Hellbent is online for free on a website hosted by Jackson Wild. So if you search World Wildlife Day, Jackson Wild, um, there's going to be a website that has a ton of different films. It's part of a short film showcase, and ours is on it, and you can watch it for free. You can also vote for it uh, if you are so inclined. It is up for an audience award, as all the films there are. So that's how you watch it for free online. However, we're hosting lots of screenings. There's it's at film festivals across the country, um, different nonprofits, religious groups, universities, student organizations are screened as well. So if you go to our website, hellbentfilm.com, you can find all the places that it's screening. Um, but again, watch it online for free. It's only uh, 18 minutes long. Not that much time. Check it out. <laughs> it's not that much of a commitment, we promise. <laughs> and you mentioned film festivals. So the film's 
been doing so well and has already won awards and appearing in a lot more film festivals. So what is the importance of these film festivals with regards to making a film like this? That's a good question. So um, as we screen our film at different festivals, we're doing it for a myriad of reasons. I guess the first one is to get as many people as possible to watch it and also like introduce it to audiences who may never have seen it. So while we're targeting communities in Appalachia and Pennsylvania specifically, it's screened in, you know, places all over the country. So someone in California may watch it and be like, wow, I had no idea that like fracking was happening in Appalachia. Like now I want to get involved. So we're getting it to different audiences. And then also with the film festival territory comes like press attention. So we're getting more, you know, sort of eyes on the story. Uh, it's also given a chance for stars of our film, Judy and Stacy, to engage with the public. So they've uh, attended um, a film festival with our filmmakers and like talked to the audience after. And they said it meant a lot to them. So it's just like a way to get more attention to the film and ultimately to their fight. Yeah, I want to share a quick story um, about their experience at the American Conservation Film Festival. Stacy had mentioned that she was standing in line to get a drink or something, and a little girl ran up to her and said that she had saw, she had seen Hellbent, and she was inspired. And when she grew up, she wanted to be a environmental activist, just like Stacy. And that really like struck Stacy because she never really like thought that she would have that impact on the world. Like she never. I guess, considered herself an environmental activist, but through this experience and being in this film and stuff, they've kind of been thrust into that role. And that's kind of how people see them. And I think they've really embraced that and they really enjoy what that looks like because people are like, yeah, you guys are the ones who are sticking it to the man and you're protecting your community and you're helping the hellbenders, like go hellbenders and everything. And they're just kind of loving the attention. Um, so that was like, it's, you know, it's really rewarding to see that. That's really amazing. And you have also got a focus with the film on impact production, which is it's something that any film that has a purpose and a message can introduce as part of their production process. So I just wondered if you could speak about the impact production of the film a little bit more. Yeah. Um, for us, I think the impact is the most important part, you know? Because like we, I like I mentioned earlier on, on the podcast, I come from a conservation wildlife biology background. And so when you're doing conservation, you're always looking at that end result. You know, you have your result chain and you've got your end result and you're thinking about what steps is going to get you to that end result. You got your final goal. Um, so when we're in this creative field of making films and doing science communication, we kind of have the same process. You know, we're all conservationists and we have that end goal. But the way that we get there is not necessarily, you know, traditional methods of like community health or like habitat restoration or like wild releases. We're doing it through visual media. And so our films that we create all have that purpose of driving some sort of impact to do a conservation goal that we set out to do from the beginning. And with this film, um, like I mentioned, that goal was to, you know, try to alleviate some of that fracking intensity on hellbender habitat and highlight the communities that are being exploited by these corporations and try to drive their solutions forward. 
And the big one that we identified through the work of Judy and Stacy is that rights of nature. And so the impact of this film has very much become promote rights of nature, connect communities that are marginalized by corporations, and try to like kickstart a movement across the country to make rights of nature more popular to protect communities and protect habitats and protect species. Because at the end of the day, we all rely on those habitats to survive. And without them, we don't. So we kind of need them. And so that's really the point of the impact. So we take impact very seriously. Um, we have hired an impact producer to help us out, but we all participate in the process of impact, coming up with various ways that we think can help move the needle to get that get the changes we want to see done on the ground and all of that good stuff. So, yeah. So that's one big thing that historically films, I don't think necessarily did. It was just, you know, enjoying the process of the film or let's just go out and make this creative film or let's tell a cool story. Uh, but for us, it's very much like we're using this as a way to do conservation. The feeling that I took away from the film after watching it for the first time, time was this feeling of hope and empowerment which is quite rare when you're an um, environmental activist <laughs> it's quite difficult to find those pockets of uh, pockets of empowerment and hope so um, I guess that was the main the main takeaway message that I had but as the filmmakers I just wondered what your feelings post post-production were about the story. I think we have to try to be optimistic um, about their fight because if they succeed I mean it's an interesting way to say if they succeed because they can always be rechallenged. but if they if if their upcoming legal case ends up with their home rule charter being un unchanged and held up in court that would be wonderful because it would set a precedent for other townships and communities in the area to do something similar but moreover it would just be like the first time a rights of nature law in the U.S. has been tested so thoroughly and held up. So we're optimistic because we have to be, but also because, like Justin was saying, we're doing this impact campaign. We're trying to get as many people to care about this as possible. If you go to our website or go to one of our screenings, you'll have an opportunity to send a postcard to Judy and Stacy, which uh, during their weekly community meetings, they read uh, any messages that people have sent them. So to kind of like get, you know, everyone feeling good. So if you won't, if you watch this film and you feel optimistic about the fight or you're worried about them, whatever, send them a message, it'll reach them. So as we try to make them feel better, as we try to get people in their community to care, or I guess not there, I mean, in the surrounding communities and also like the people whose fate, uh, who's trying to phrase this, the people who are deciding their fate, we want to get their attention too. So we're trying to get, any connections we can to the politicians in the area to, you know, give that, like, you can't interfere with the legal case, of course, but like, I think the more pressure from the public uh, surrounding this case could be super helpful. So we're trying to be optimistic and uh, change things for the better. Yeah, I think about um, what you mentioned and what Annie had talked about, about being positive at the end. That's really by design. <laughs> Like I mentioned, we have the impact and we want to have that particular thing to happen. You know, we want people to walk away from the feel, film feeling inspired, like they can do something. 
And that's just kind of like playing into the human psyche, just knowing that if someone feels like there's hope and something positive is happening, they'd rather join and be a participant in that in a movement that's already doing well versus, you know, trying to do something about something that's very overwhelming or very difficult or like is not going well. And so, you know, we kind of did that. And it's also, you know, a lot of films don't necessarily have that positive ending with when it comes to environmental activism, like you said, but I think it's extremely important because we just, we need to fill our gas tanks with hope and positivity or else we're all just going to burn out. (laughs) So, you know, if we've got that, we can create story or tell stories and share success stories about the things people are doing that are working then I think that's going to be something that we can all utilize to better change the world and do everything that we're hoping to do, protect species, protect habitats, and protect communities. Annie, I believe this was your first role as a director. Am I right? Yes, definitely. So I've made little tiny videos for news outlets before, but nothing like this. Um, I found that my skills as a science journalist did had a lot of there's a lot of crossover between a science journalist and director a lot of it was just finding the characters writing the interview questions um kind of so getting the heart of the story but I mean this film was amazing because of who worked on it I'm not talking about me everyone else who made this film was like incredible um I was lucky to have them because I mean during 2020 a lot of the people who were making this, this film like their gigs dried up because of covid and then we started making this film and uh, you know, once the pandemic was kind of winding down, they started getting on these gigs again. So I can say like the people who made this film, like shoot for Netflix and like, you know, all these fancy outlets. And uh, it really shows like the cinematography is crazy good. I say we have the best footage of Hellbenders of any movie ever. Like I can say that with confidence. I've seen every other Hellbender movie. We have the best Hellbender footage. Um and also, like, our editor, Katie Garrett, just, like, weaved this story so masterfully. Because, honestly, like, if I was trying to sell you a story and say, hey, I have this story about a legal case and a salamander that's really hard to see. They'd be like, hmm. But she found a way to make it so engaging uh, and, like, so clear and concise. I mean, it's only 18 minutes. And we go through this town's, like, five-year history and all the scientific things you need to know about fracking out hellbenders. And you don't feel like you're being lectured. You feel like you're on a fun ride. So uh, yeah, everyone who made this film is amazing. <laughs> and they like did so much work for free. I love them. Um, and obviously there's there's the cinematography, which makes the film amazing and the storyline. But there's also a beautiful musical score and the animation as well, which we, which we, which we hadn't touched on, which are like such important parts of what makes the film as amazing as it is I like was so uh like I had a vision for the for the sound like I knew I wanted to hire composer Micah Anderson uh but I was like Micah this film has to have banjo like there's no way it can be made without banjo like please he's like oh yeah no for sure so like as a group we were talking about it and like we're like do we have the budget for film like I will find the money we have to have this like I don't care how expensive it is like we have to have the banjo and we basically agreed like all the sounds we wanted were like sounds that could feasibly have been recorded there. So like, you know, Appalachian kind of music. And also we had these gorgeous sort of river sounds that we recorded on site. And in the end, it was just gorgeous. 
Yeah, I feel like the just the sound of the film, like you could almost kind of well, not not to discredit any of the cinematography or the or the animation, but even just listening, like you could listen to it as an audiobook sort of thing, and it would be just as powerful and beautiful. So yeah, I really, really, really enjoyed how it's how it sounded. So well I done to everybody add, involved in that bit. <laughs> I'd love to add that um, our editor Katie Garrett also did all the animation. And what's really special about her, besides the fact that she's like a wizard, is that she like only makes films about amphibians, mostly, <laughs> like almost exclusively. And so we knew we had to have her for this. Like it would be impossible to not have her. And she's also an artist and she makes these incredible watercolors. And we were like, is there a way we can like weave your watercolors into the story? And we we're like talking about the different ways we do it. Like, oh, like a drop of like, you know, black ink looks a lot like, you know, like oil and gas. Like, can we do that? And it all just like came together so beautifully. Her animations were like her watercoloring and time lapse. Like it was really beautiful. Thank you so, so, so much for joining me today and for doing the interview. Um, and for people that want to watch the film, people that want to get involved, the best place to do that is the website and also social media. Um, it's on all social media platforms. So um, follow along um, as the story progresses and hopefully progresses in a positive way. Thank you for having us. And yeah, we hope everything works out too. Uh, but yeah, watch the film. Let Stacey and Judy know how you feel about it. And uh, yeah, just keep watching because it's an important story. And uh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. It, it really means a lot to have these conversations and be able to talk about like the importance of grassroots community conservation. Like that's where it starts. That's where the best conservation work is done. And so we're just really honored to be able to tell their story and share their story with the rest of the world. Awesome. So before we get into um, kind of news updates that we have scrounged the internet for um we want to talk about um the following episode that we have and matt you were actually the one who did the interview for that and can you give us a little kind of brief intro into that episode yeah so the episode we have um coming next um in two weeks uh is an interview with uh a, an author whose name is blake hausman um he's uh, a science fiction author um also a cherokee author um, so I think his writing sort of falls into this category of indigenous science fiction, um, which is really fascinating to me. His book is called Riding the Trail of Tears. So he wrote a science fiction book about um, a virtual reality trail of tears ride. So he's imagining a future where people pay money to like go into this very advanced virtual reality world and like experience the trauma of the Trail of Tears, um, which is such a fascinating and bizarre premise for a, a book. And it's, I picked this book up um, a few months back when, when I came across it and it blew me away. It is an unbelievable book. Like I can't believe that more people don't know about it and, and, and have read it. Like it's just 
so many aspects of, about it are deeply fascinating uh, to me. And it's also just, I mean, I read the whole thing in a weekend. I couldn't put it down. Um, so I was really super stoked to have the opportunity to, to chat um, with Blake. And we had a super awesome, awesome. conversation um, that I'm really stoked to share with yeah. our listeners. Blake sounds like a great um, interview subject. Um, and also just this new kind of genre of cli-fi climate mm -hmm. fiction, which is becoming a lot more popularized, um, you know, in our ever looming, you know, science fiction world that a lot of these books are envisioning. So it, I think that'll be a really awesome interview. So thank you, Matt, uh, for that little introduction. So the, the article that I pulled that I thought was kind of interesting um, and one that I, you know, I just get so bogged down with the doom and gloom of most environmental news updates. Uh, you know, there were a couple about the anniversary of the Deepwater Horizon oil spill and how a lot of the um, cleanup uh, workers are now suing because they have all kinds of cancer and all these horrible things happening to them. You know, so we're getting a lot of that all the time. But the one that I pulled uh, to talk about today is called, it's from The Guardian, and it's called Elephant Seals Sleep for Just Two Hours a Day, Deep Dive Research Reveals. And in the article, it kind of outlines how we think of elephant seals as those really lazy, um, kind of dorky, guys on the beach that just look like they're living their best life uh, and, you know, no, <laughs> don't have to pay taxes or do bills or, you know, do any of the horrible things us humans have to do. But um, they actually found that these um, elephant seals are doing these 30 minute deep dives, sometimes almost to the bottom of the seafloor, depending on how shallow the water is where they live. And on those 30 minute dives, they take up to 10 minutes of sleep in those dives. And they're doing this kind of corkscrew free fall <laughs> while they're sleeping and, and, you know, dreaming. Oh um, and gosh. then they'll pop back up and, and, you know, come up for air. So it's kind of interesting to think of, you know, I don't, I don't think a lot of people realize like birds do this too, while they're flying. A lot of animals out there don't get the, you know, the nice eight hour window that we humans tend to get on a day to day basis. Um, one that has to do with predators, you know, there's just all kinds of factors that um, wildlife has to think about and prepare for. So they can't just leisurely take long naps. Um, you know, their energy gets spent differently um, biologically. So um, these divers spent a lot of time <laughs> trying to track these, you know, corkscrew free falling elephant seals, watching them take naps on the bottom of the ocean floor. So um, I thought that was kind of a fun and really interesting article. And that is from The Guardian. And again, that's called Elephant Seals Sleep for Just Two Hours a Day, Deep Dive Research Reveals. And that's usually in 10-minute bursts of sleep. So think about that if you're lying awake like I usually am at night, just, you know, <laughs> hoping for sleep to take me. But um, I don't think I, I can complain anymore at this point. So anyway, that was my article this week. That's amazing. That is an amazing <laughs> article. That is blowing. I'm just like the picture in my mind of, you know, those elephant seals doing that dive and like, you know, circling through the water while they're dreaming. Yeah. Right. That's awesome. That's right? unbelievable. Would you trade being a human to be a, a an elephant seal? Maybe. Because that, because that, uh, yeah. 
Like, that sounds Maybe. simultaneously cool, but also, like, terrifying oh, that yeah. you're just free-falling in the middle of the ocean. Totally, like, vulnerable to the elements and predators mm-hmm. for 10 minutes burst. I don't know. But it also sounds, like, really lovely and soothing, so. Right, and it's, like, a whole other world that, like, we can't really explore, right? I mean, yeah. I guess, you know, people that are into scuba, you know, I get it, and, and that's, you know, um, but get uh, yeah like we can't experience that world in the same no. way um, and then imagine having to hold your breath for 10 minutes while you sleep during that time crazy. that's crazy anyway sure. we sure. love uh, crazy stories like that and uh you know love our wildlife here on the earth to humans <laughs> podcast <laughs> um and we're gonna start doing uh, these news updates pulling articles that each of us find interesting um each episode so um, we'll keep bringing you more up-to-date Cool information. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for that one. That's a particularly awesome one. I'm going to check that out for sure. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Well, cool. Um, uh, Ahead of each episode, which is released every other Wednesday, um, we're going to be doing an Instagram Live, 4.30 Pacific, 5.30 Mountain Time for anyone who wants to catch us on Instagram. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Uh, And we'll see you guys in two weeks. Yeah, thanks, everybody. The music for today's episode is taken from the original score of Hellbent, composed by the amazing Micah Anderson. Head to the show notes to watch the film and follow Hellbent on social media to keep up to date with their work and Grant Township's fight against fracking. Hellbent is a co-production of the Wildlands Collective, who also make this podcast. If you want to learn more about our community, our talented members and the other productions we're working on, please follow us at Wildlands Inc. on all social medias. Thank you for listening.